Hi there, and welcome to the Man in the Van podcast, your regular audio drive time companion, where our main aim is education through a conversation. Through our conversations, delve deep into all things related to the tradesperson contracting community, from news to education to industry happenings, helping you do better business while building a better and improved South African tradesmen and women contracting community. Thanks for tuning in. Let's start the conversation. Warm welcome to our audience members. My name is Willem Klopper, and in this episode, we will discuss SANS, or alternatively known as South African National Standards. We will also be discussing the SABS, or the South African Bureau of Standards. Do take note that the duration of this episode does exceed an hour, but we do believe that every bit of information shared in this conversation will be of great value to you. Now, with me in studio, I've got my anchor, uh, Mr. Steve Brown from IOPSA, as well as Ms. Lorraine Moy from PARB. And then, of course, our guests, uh, Mr. Hermann Strauss, the project manager of IOPSA, as well as Dr. Sadvir Basun from the SABS. Just before we give our guests the opportunity to introduce themselves, let's hit the brakes. <laughs> We'd like to remind our audience that this episode is proudly brought to you by Articulated Plumber. Let's continue the conversation. Dr. Bissoun, before I fire away with all the other questions that I have, can I ask you to just give a brief introduction of yourself to the guests? Who are you? Uh, what What is your current position in, in your sector in the SABS? And uh, what is your current role and your responsibilities there? And, and when did you start there? Good afternoon, Willem, and uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about the SABS. Um, so I've been at the SABS for the last 17 years, um, came through um, to the SABS in 2003 as a researcher in the development of standards. I've certainly progressed through the organization in a number of positions, marketing, sales, certification, um, standards, and uh, the final opportunity is executive standards at the moment. Just a, a question for people that know what uh, SABS, uh, what the acronym stands for, and SANS as well, please, Dr. Bassoon. So SABS is the institution, which is South African Bureau of Standards. SANS is South African National Standards, so it's basically the publication. So SABS houses the National Standards Body, and uh, through a various and diverse stakeholder representation in our technical committees, we develop technical documents, and the documents are referred to as South African National Standards. And then our next guest, Mr. Hermann Strauss, uh, if you could just give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself, your current role in the sector, and uh, how did you end up in the sector? Oh, that's a very long story, but, um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'll keep it brief. So as you said, uh, at the moment, I fulfill a role as project manager at IOPSA Institute of Plumbing, South Africa. Um, we, a part of, part of this role, we, we look into, into standards, the different standards applied in the plumbing industry, um, how it affects the plumbers and so on. Um, in my background, I've, I actually worked for SABS for a number of years. I've been involved in a number of the SABS technical committees, including the uh, the, the plumbing committees, and I've, I've spent some time in the industry um, working on the other side, having having to prove that my products complied uh, with standards. But that's just a, a brief background. 
Dr. Bassoon, I'm going to direct this question directly to you. Tell us a little bit more about the SABS as an organization. Now, I've got a couple of sub-questions that I would like to ask you here, and, it's, and it all relates to the SABS as an organization. What is the purpose of the SABS? So the SABS is uh, through a legislated mandate, uh, which is Standards Act of 2008, is uh, basically legislated to provide a number of services. The first is to develop, promote, maintain and disseminate South African national standards. The second is to promote quality with regards to commodities, products and services. And lastly, the provision of conformity assessment services to both the public and private sector. These conformity assessment services include testing services, certification services, inspection, verification services, as well as an element of training services. When was it established? When was the SABS established? That's a fantastic question because this year, uh, the month of September, we celebrate our 75th anniversary. So oh, happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. The, the SABS has been established in 1945. We are a founding member of the International Organization for Standardization. We are a member of the International Electrotechnical Commission. So we've been in the business for 75 years, providing standardization services, developing national standards, as well as uh, providing assurance services in the marketplace. Is the SABS a private company or is it a government entity? And, and how is it governed? So it's a government entity. Uh, as pointed out, we conduct our mandate according to the Standards Act of 2008. Uh, we report directly through to the Department of Trade and Industry and Competition. And um, the Department of Trade and Industry and Competition is the executive authority. We have a board and the board is the accounting authority. And uh, the CEO reports to the board and an executive below that. So the board is responsible for governance and oversight of the organization and all the activities that need to be conducted from a policy governance um, strategy aligned to the mandate uh, of the Standards Act. What is the relationship between the SABS and the NRCS, the National Regulator for Compulsory Specifications? This is very important to understand because there are four technical infrastructure institutions that report to the Department of Trade and Industry and Competition. The first one being the SABS, and I highlighted the uh, mandate of the SABS. The second is the institution called SANAS, South African National Accreditation System. They are responsible for providing a system of accreditation and ensure that conformity assessment bodies meet the accreditation standards for them to perform their activities. Thirdly, NAMISA, which is the National Metrology Institute of South Africa, and they are responsible for traceability of measurement. And lastly, we come to the NRCS. The NRCS is the National Regulator for Compulsory Specifications. They are, it is the regulatory body amongst the four technical infrastructure institutions. They have the mandate to regulate um, products in the marketplace and uh, they have a specific focus in terms of the scope of their work. NRCS is one of many regulators in the marketplace. So NRCS is not the regulator, it is one of the regulators and it's that entity that reports to the Department of Trade and Industry. You would realize that Every, literally every government department has a leg, leg regulatory arm uh, within it. 
like the Department of Labor, the Department of uh, Minerals and Resources, each element within the department, there's a regulatory element to it, and they enforce regulations. Uh, NRCS basically provides the regulatory service, participates very actively in our technical committees, and references our South African national standards in their regulations, uh, and subsequently they refer to as um, compulsory specifications, VCs, and they administer and enforce these standards that they have referenced in their regulations. What is the difference between the SABS and the, uh, the SANS standards? Uh, I think Lorraine did ask you the, the definition of the acronyms, what they stand for. If you could just give us a little bit more insight on in, into that, please. So um, the SABS is the institution that provides uh, the development or platforms for the development of uh, South African national standards. And uh, the development of South African national standards is through various technical committees. So SABS is the institution. Within the institution, we have technical committees that develop technical content, which is referred to as, we, we perceive it as knowledge and transmission of that knowledge into uh, publications. And these publications are referred to as South African National Standards. It's important to understand that it is not SABS standards. SABS does not put in the technical content to the documents. It is industry, it is representatives in the various stakeholder groups that come into technical committees, sit around the table, identify a problem, and then put together technical solutions to solve the problem or to solve a potential application in a problem around maybe a new innovative technology or new innovative services. So SABS provides, as part of the technical committees, the governance framework for the development of national standards. And that's why it's referred to as South African national standards, not SABS standards. Uh, just a question, uh, Doctor. So are both um, uh, important to the plumber? You know, SABS itself and the SAN standards, in your opinion? Sure. So the standards are very important. Now, uh, another criteria about our deliverables are that South African national standards are for voluntary application. South African national standards are not regulations in their own right. It becomes mandatory only when a regulator references a standard as part of his administration of a regulation. So we try as far as possible to ensure that the distribution of these documents are effective in the marketplace for voluntary uptake and voluntary application. And if a regulator seems it fit to reference a particular standard because he has the regulator has an issue around market access, an issue around the health and safety of the consumer or environmental uh, concerns, the regulator has all the opportunity to reference our standard and thereby it becomes mandatory uh, by the regulator to enforce that. Uh, Dr. Bissun, you, you touched on the subject of the technical committees. Um, so I, I can deduce from that that there exist technical committees within the SABS. Um, how are they compiled and what are the requirements for becoming part of such a technical community, uh, committee? So we have about 302 technical committees and subcommittees. They're very diverse, so they serve every sector in the economy. 
ranging from applications of fourth industrial revolution, if we're talking about Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, and the likes of ICT, right through to technical committees that address social responsibility, uh, corruption, uh, we're talking about um, scopes of work that address the plumbing industry, the building and construction, very diverse uh, in, terms of in terms of the classification of our technical committees. The representation in our technical committees are more industry experts that participate in our technical committees. Majority of our technical committees comprise, I would es uh, estimate, about 70% of the representation of our technical committees are industry experts because they firstly understand and appreciate the importance of standards and the application of standards on a voluntary basis to the interest industry in terms of quality of products and market access of products, not only locally, but internationally as well. Uh, and that's where we play a very important role in terms of our membership to ISO and our membership to IEC. So representation uh, is critical. We try as far as possible to make a balance in our technical committees. Uh, and this balance includes uh, other stakeholders, representatives from industry, representatives, rep representatives from academia, um, from the regulators, uh, representatives from government departments, labor organizations, small, medium, and micro enterprises. I think it's an area where uh, there's huge amount of deficiency in terms of participating and understanding uh, standards, the SMMEs, and assisting them to actually move, apply, implement the standards, and move into um, the broader um, stream of uh, of applying their trade and the broad and participating in the broader economy. So you can anybody can apply to become a member. A membership, ideally, we look at organizations and associations because you've got a broader and diverse range of rep of representatives within the association. And uh, there's two types of memberships, participating membership and observer membership. Participating membership is whereby you participate and uh, you have the opportunity for a balloting process. So you can vote for a particular document. Observer um, status is that you can do everything but um, have a status of uh, of balloting or a voting process. So the member can determine which status they would like to, and we try as far as possible to make sure that the men members contribute significantly to the technical committees and drive the work programs uh, in terms of conclusion of those projects. All right. And Dr. Bissoun, can you give us a few examples of the different sectors and, and the different industries to which SAN standards uh, uh, apply or to which they are applicable to? So there's a number of um, industries um, that uh, we have established um, technical committees for. Um, I would like to just uh, talk about um, a few of the industries. The and, and our technical committees are aligned to the to support the industrial priority sectors as well so if you have to look at a few sectors the sectors include agriculture and processing it includes the um, in industry sectors and the industry sectors are very broad the the automotive clothing textile leather uh, plastics um, renewable energies including other economies or other um, sectors uh, which include mining uh, creative sector, defense, oceans economy. So uh, there's a very diverse range of uh, scope of work amongst our technical committees. Each technical committee 
has their own program of work and their subcommittees are pretty diverse in terms of the outputs as well. We publish currently, we have more than 7,500 South African national standards. So we've got to manage that 7,500 7, standards and uh, they are subjected to a review. Remember, these documents are living documents. At any given time where there's a change in a requirement, an individual or committee member can request that this document be changed to accommodate any changes in the environment or the sector uh, from a technical perspective. And we will review the proposal at the technical committee. Uh, technical committee members will, will um, endorse it and it goes through the process of amendments or revision of that standard. Uh, but the technical committee scope of work is very diverse and diverses over um, probably more than 20 different sectors of the economy. And just before we continue the conversation, it's time to hit the brakes again. Don't forget to download the all new and improved App Plumber from the Google Play Store. All your plumbing solutions are just a click away, exclusively for Android users. Welcome back. To continue our conversation, I would like to ask the following question. Would my perception be correct if I say that I, I perceive a standard as, as a set of requirements uh, to which something has to comply? In other words, if I perform a specific job, then I have to comply with the requirements that are set within a standard. Is, is that a correct perception to make? Is that, is, is that correct? Certainly, quite simply put, that is exactly what needs to happen. Um, so just bear in mind that um, compliance is not mandatory, compliance is voluntary. And that is very important to understand in terms of our publications. South African national standards by default are voluntary documents. You want to make sure that the government departments and industry out there and, or, and civil society have the ability to understand and appreciate the strategic value of a document, of a national standard. Take that, implement that, and it allows for a system of self-regulation. You don't want to impose regulations because regulations come with a, at a cost. You've got to have, you, because to determine regulations, you need to do an impact assessment, and eventually somebody needs to pay for administration of the regulations. And in, and in, in most of the cases, it is the industry that has to pay. So the ideal situation is that the standards need to be taken up voluntarily, applied by industry. All the rules of the standard uh, need to be applied by, not specific uh, parts of the, of the standards, because this is important, because uh, you have to have a holistic approach in terms of uh, meeting the requirements. And that is we, we start talking about the quality of the products and the quality of services that need to be rendered. In terms of imported products, um, how are those approved? And is, uh, an SBS, uh, is the SBS a minimum requirement for those products? So importation of, of products is, um, the requirements are exactly the same as products that you release into the marketplace. So you can't have a standard for imported products and a standard for, for local products. That goes beyond the WTO, TBT requirements. You don't want to create unnecessary technical barriers and then you are now summoned to the WTO uh, arbitrary process. So we are, uh, South Africa are signatories to the WTO, TBT agreement. So um, the requirements have to be the same. So the standards are voluntary. 
where the standards are referenced in regulation, they will be enforced. So the regulator will apply the same standard and same requirements to imported products as this as the requirements that he deems fit for local products to enter into to the marketplace. Okay. If, if if I can maybe add on to that, I think that's one of the areas where the NRCS plays a very big role. It is where there are standards that is governed by the NRCS that falls within their jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. One of the, the, the actions that they take is at the ports of entry, mm -hmm. there are verifications that happen to ensure or to help prevent product, non-compliant products from coming into the country. But that is for the products that is within the NRCS's uh, jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. um, as Dr. Bissoun mentioned, where, where standards are called up in other legislation, it is the responsibility of those government departments to make sure they implement whatever uh, policing is necessary for them. Herman, having touched on the subject of the different sectors to which SAN standards uh, apply, uh, are there any SAN standards that uh, are, are applicable and relevant to the plumbing industry specifically? And, and if so, please give us some insight there too. Um, yes, there are quite a few. So I'm not going to start quoting numbers here. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure if the listeners all got pens ready. I'm going to quote three numbers late, uh, shortly, so get the pen ready. But I think the starting point is, understand the, the, the SABS, the organization, has got a very, very good um, standards information center. So whenever in doubt, phone them, ask them. Uh, they, My experience is they, they're very helpful and they will guide you and point out which standards you need. Within the plumbing sector specifically, I mean, the Institute of Plumbing, um, I, I, I want to say, obviously, have a good idea of what, which standards are applicable within, within the plumbing industry. And you can always contact the OPSA office as well and get some guidance from there. But the starting point for all plumbers are the three main standards that um, I call them the parent standards, and most of the other standards flow from there. So... Re recommended for all plumbers to, to make sure you have a copy of SANS 10252 Part 1, SANS 10252 Part 2, and SANS 10254, because these are the main standards that explain um, how plumbing installations must be done, where it is, uh, well, it, well it, it, it explains everything from there. So, Herman, if you, if you recommend that, that plumbers should acquire the, some of those standards and the recommended standards that you, that you mentioned, uh, uh, would, you, would you recommend um, or, or why would you recommend that plumbers acquire those standards? So, there's, there's two reasons. But the first and the most important reason of, uh, out of all of that is because those standards make sure that the products comply. Those standards make sure that the plumbing complies. Remember, plumbing, um, the plumbing is a very, very important and critical trade within, within our country. And following these standards will ensure that um, everybody's protected, it's safe, and it works. On top of that, these standards have been called up in legislation. There's at least three sets of independent um, laws that, that make reference to these, to these standards which makes it a legal, comply, uh, a legal requirement to comply with all three of these ones, uh, building regulations, uh, pressure equipment regulations, as well as the Water Services Act, all refer to that. So apart from the fact that the standard just simply makes sure the work is right, um, it's a legal requirement, it's the right thing to do. 
Sorry, just to go back to um, in terms of the compliant of products. If um, a product should just bypass, it just happens that they get onto the market and it's a non-compliant product. Um, how do you go about reporting that as a consumer or as, a, as an installer? Dr. Bassoon, perhaps you can answer that question for us. So um, not all products um, are regulated. I can tell you there's a significant portion of products that are not regulated in the marketplace. So uh, they will come in, uh, if they are imported, um, it'll go through a process of customs check. Um, South African Revenue Services will look at the products and look if the paperwork is sufficient to allow the products into the marketplace. Um, and that's the simple process. If a product is basically um, non-compliant uh, and a consumer has the perception that is non-compliant, we have uh, the Consumer Union, which is the National Consumer um, Commission mm -hmm. that um, you could uh, lodge a complaint with and uh, they will investigate and uh, they will apply their mind very impartially, uh, even to the extent of taking samples, independently testing the samples, or if it's a service, uh, do the internal investigation as well to determine if there's non-compliance. If there's non-compliance, then there's recourse that they have the ability uh, to implement. Going back to what, what you've mentioned before about the technical com uh, committees and, and how the SANS standards are compiled, um, there, there is a general perception that certain industry bodies compile standards uh, as the industry bodies see it fit. And uh, is that perception correct? Let's, let's say, for instance, uh, if, I can, if I may use example, the PRB or IOPSA as plumbing industry bodies, for example, uh, is that perception correct that they compile the standards as they see fit? And uh, if it is not correct, please explain to us how and by whom exactly are these standards compiled? It, that's a very good question because um, a lot of um, consumers, industry members out there uh, really struggle to understand the concept of developing standards. So you quite rightly say uh, that industry standards you know, slash consortia standards do exist. And there's nothing wrong with that in the marketplace because you've got a few industry groupings that come together and uh, provide a solution, a technical solution for their products for access to the market. We just got to be very cautious whether there's um, you know, a, a hidden agenda with that in terms of a perceived collusion of products to enter the marketplace if it becomes the requirement for that product to be entered the marketplace, meaning just a few, a handful of, of organizations come together and develop the standard. But that standard is not a national standard. Uh, we need to be very clear, it is not a national standard until it comes to, to the SABS and it goes through a rigorous process of standards development. So PIRB or any organization out there that has a base document um, can come through to the SABS technical committee and motivate and justify for that base document to be used as an initial document for progressing it towards a national standard. So they will introduce the document, introduce the concept, a discussion will take place within the committee. And as I mentioned, the representation in the technical committee is not just one industry uh, organization or association. We have a diverse representation. So it's of a national interest that uh, we have uh, diverse experiences and diverse comments and diverse appetite for that solution in the marketplace. And that's where we take away all the, the, the substantial partial 
uh, or subjective nature of uh, of an, in, an institution bringing forward an agenda to drive a particular agenda in the marketplace. So we safeguard ourselves in the technical committee around that. We got codes of conduct. We have competition guidelines as well that we implement, which is very important. Um, so when that document comes through, it goes through a number of stages. Um, and I mean, and we could talk about the stages, etc. But it goes through a number of stages of consensus development. The principles of developing a national standard is openness, transparency, stakeholder engagement, consensus development, coherence. These are all the international best practice principles that need to be adhered to in a technical committee and, and stakeholders, representatives need to respect those and that's how we progress the development of a national standard. So an industry standard will remain an industry standard. Once it comes into a technical committee, um, the industry representatives need to understand that it's going to go through a rigorous process of putting together a national document which requires national stakeholder engagement, even to the extent that when we, the document is literally finalized for publication, it goes out to public inquiry, meaning every single citizen has the opportunity to comment on that document. So for all 55 million South Africans, if more than that, have the opportunity to comment on the document and uh, and we look at those comments the committee will look at it address the comments and then subsequently publish the document and then subsequent to that it is gazetted so it's like a legal document but the compliance of that is voluntary it's a very rigorous process of developing south african national standards i think that brings a lot of clarity on that matter there was there's certain aspects that even myself didn't know about those <laughs> so lorraine i think shoot with a question i think you've got a question for dr bassoon um just a question to to everybody um all too often you know you see a, a test report for a product and uh, we take it as compliant because there's a test report so what do you what do we as plumbers what do we look for to know that this is actually it's legit, <laughs> put it that way, if it's, if it's correct and if it is a compliant product. It's, um, we, can, we can have a, a full day session around conformity assessments and, <laughs> tests, and test reports. Yeah, Herman knows it very well. I just need closeness. So it all depends. <laughs> it, uh, so a test report can be, uh, and there's different categories of a test report. It could be a first party test report whereby it's a self-declaration by the company who is manufacturing and he just he has an internal laboratory and he um, looks at the requirements of the test method and he uh, tests his products and he issues it and he has a test report on on the basis of his company name that's a first party second party is whereby a supplier uh, or uh, somebody who's procuring the product from the manufacturer he uh, that organization can do a test as well and that's a second party test report what you want to be looking for in terms of authenticity and integrity is a third party test report and that third party test report is from an accredited laboratory or accredited service provider so i mentioned sunas earlier sunas is the accreditation body you want to look at the test report and see in the test report whether that there's a logo that makes reference to an accreditation body, which is the SANAS uh, logo, and that will provide clarity on the authenticity, the integrity of that test report as well. You certainly want to look at, if you're talking about full compliance to a particular uh, product in terms of meeting the requirements of a standard, mm -hmm. you've got to read the standard and read the fine lines to determine whether it says partial tests, 
uh, or test to specific requirements, that will tell you whether that product has been fully tested against the South African national standard. So you, there's, there's a lot of indicators that you need to look for to determine the authenticity of the test report. Um, Herman, um, I, I guess you've been in the test lab uh, and you know probably more than I do. I think one, one of the things that makes it very interesting when everything you say is, I mean, it's, it's a big process in, and there, there's a lot of things to look, uh, to look for in a, in a test report. Um, the ultimate is most definitely having a test report that is accredited by SANAS or internationally, ILAC accreditation. Um, that, that, that's the ultimate where you, uh, that, that you look at. I mean, there's a lot of detail that goes into a test report because it becomes a, um, a technical challenge to, to identify which of the components, because accreditation is not always, uh, or, or the way that accreditation works, um, laboratories are accredited for specific methods. So you can have a test report showing accreditation, but it could be accreditation for some of the uh, the test. I mean, the norm in South Africa is that most test reports is accredited for a portion of the tests only. So it's important to to look at the actual requirements of the standard to compare it with a the, uh, compare the requirements of the standard and the report, um, which methods have been accredited or not. Um, so it's a <laughs> it, it it can become an interesting process. The I think to summarize that, if you really want to evaluate the the report, you need to just Pay attention. Look at what the requirements of the standard is. Look if the report actually addresses that. Um, if it, I think the starting point is look at the heading. What is the what does the front page say? Mm -hmm. uh, is this test to the actual national standard, mm -hmm. the South African national standard? Um, and from there, you follow the process. Okay, because we just want to get back to the fact that it's, so a test report does not necessarily mean that it's a, it's compliant. Uh, it could just be a report that you tested a certain component, and that's what it means only. That and that is what we need to take cognizance of: is that it's not always just that I've I've got a test report for this, you know, this PRV. It could just be that my PRV is just being tested, but not tested necessarily to the to the stand, to the standard. Yes, no. As you say, we, we, we can have a whole, a whole debate, <laughs> a whole session, a full day session on this. But it's absolutely correct. Remember, a test report is there's a date stamp on a test report on a specific date in time. A specific product went into the lab. This report, the the report is a reflection of what happened with that product on that day. It has got no bearing whatsoever on the production. The rest of the items coming off that production line. You can, one way of looking at it is to say, you know what, the test report is a design verification. It verifies that this product design complied. Verifying that the products coming from the production line um, still is required, uh, is compliant, that's a, uh, there, there's additional processes for that, and certification mm -hmm. is the, the ultimate as far as that's concerned. Uh, just asking about certification. So, just in terms of ACBS, though, um, how often are the certificates of compliance for the different products reviewed? Is it a once-off, or is it uh, a continuous process? So, the certification uh, of products and services at the SABS is is quite large. There's two types of certification. One is your system certification. A uh, typical example is your nine, ISO 9001, and that's certification of your systems, not necessarily the products. Um, I think we're moving more towards product certification, and product certification is a process whereby we go into the manufacturer's um, premises, uh, 
We determine he, whether he has a management system. It may not be compliant to ISO 9001, but a management system process to ensure that his processes, his systems, his procedures allow for a consistent development um, and release of products on an ongoing basis. So it's consistent manufacturing processes. So when they, there's a two-prong audit, which is a, an audit of the processes and systems, and secondly, they will go to the product. They'll draw a sample from the line, and uh, they will uh, bring the product to a test laboratory. In most cases, it's the SABS test laboratory. The product will be tested to meet the requirements of a South African national standard. If the product passes the, the standard, then the reports of the audit of the company, the manufacturer, together with the report of the product, will allow for a certification, referred to as product certification, to be issued to the client. It's a three-year product certification scheme. Every year, there is a surveillance audit that is done on the manufacturer. Um, it depends on the frequency as well. At times, it could be one, depending on uh, how mature the processes are in the organization. At times, it could be two. We also draw samples on an annual basis of the product and the product is tested on an annual basis, not necessarily the full specification, it's according to the, the requirements of that particular um, um, scheme. And um, every year the product is tested, and in the final year, the third year, all the elements that have been tested and the requirements will provide a final report to determine whether the manufacturer uh, is recommended to maintain another three-year process of certification. So that is a general certification process that happens um, at the SABS, which is compliant to the certification or accreditation standard, which is ISO 17065. Dr. Bissoun, we've we've heard the word uh, uh, repeatedly throughout the conversation, the word comply, comply compliance, um, and compliant. So, if a if a standard is a set of requirements according to which a product has to comply with, or according to which a a service or a, a, a service has to be delivered, can I ask, what is the purpose for having those requirements? Can can I deduce from that that it may be uh, to perhaps reduce risk to the consumer of that product? Is is that a correct perception to make? Or is it it's uh, it certainly is. It's one of the many reasons why you should comply to a standard. The first thing is you comply to a standard because you want your product you want assurance um, or that your product meets a particular requirement, which is a, a general requirement to allow access of your product to the marketplace. Uh, the consumer has an element of assurance that that product meets a particular standard. Thirdly, as you quite rightly pointed out, you safeguarding the interest of the consumer, uh, as well as you safeguarding the interest of the environment as well. Um, and those are key issues to be addressed. But I think over and above that, it allows for trade. We don't uh, want to develop standards that are hindering trade, not only domestic trade, but regional trade. We want our products and services to enter new markets, new countries, and our product and our standards need to be aligned to the other country standards as well and to the global market. So being a member of ISO, the SABS is a member of ISO, we participate in a wide variety of committees in ISO, very similar, we mirror committees at the ISO level. 
So our committees that we have, all 300 of them, mirror the activities at ISO. ISO develops international best practice standards. We adopt them, implement them in South Africa. And what does this allow? It allows us, the products and the services in our country, to move beyond borders. And this is where you start getting economic growth and socioeconomic activities in terms of respecting international best practice and bringing in state-of-the-art solutions uh, to the economy as well. ISO standards um, also embody innovation, new emerging technologies, and it's actually a source of information and research and development information that companies in South Africa can use to develop new industries and new industrialization ambitions as part of the Department of Trade and Industries and Competitions ambition as well for South Africa. ISO then, of course, being the uh, International Organization for Standards. That's for correct. For standardization. International Organization for Standardization. Standardization, correct. 100%. So I take it standards are not only requirements to, to reduce risk for that matter, but also to improve quality, both services and products. So there's a number of studies that have uh, that we have conducted together with uh, international studies, and these studies refer to the economic benefits of standards. So there's different levels of economic benefits of standards. You can do a study on the macroeconomic level, and you could determine the percentage impact of a standard or collection of standards on the GDP of the economy of the country. We've done a few studies with a few companies that have volunteered uh, to come to SABS and determine the impact of them implementing South African national standards and and what impact it had on, on, on their production, on their turnover, on reducing um, their client uh, um, satisfaction, or increasing the client satisfaction rate, reducing uh, the amount of waste, uh, increasing marketing opportunities, increasing sales. We've done three studies um, and um, th three companies include... Um, Pretoria, Portland Cement. Uh, we've done a study with Crabtree as well as Quickot. So those are the three that come to mind at this stage around um, studies on the economic benefits. And it was clearly shown um, by the implementation of management system standards, standards that are also as part of um, uh, regulations, that are referenced in regulations, had a significant impact on operational efficiencies, on marketing, product quality, reduction of rejects, um, extension of their market appetite as well, and movement of products, easier movement of products into the marketplace. I think you, you mentioned before that uh, compliance is, is voluntary, but I think... Uh, now that the audience members know the benefits of complying and compliance, um, I think that, that it, it should bring forth a, a sort of a, a mind shift so that people will voluntary, voluntarily comply uh, more, more regularly, more often. Um, and um, yeah, that their perception changes as, as, as this is not a stick for me to be, uh, it's not a punitive meta, uh, measurement or uh, 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 um, matter but rather something that brings forth improvement and and quality etc um, i can i can if if i can quickly add to that i think one one of the things that's that i've experienced especially at the time of my career when i was outside of of the the compliance or outside of the acbs i wasn't verifying stuff we had to ensure that products comply with the with the various standards and so on but we found that it's the best way I can uh, describe it is a standard covers your blind spot. 
you you might have a big focus on a certain aspect of the product or the installation, but you might be missing something critical from another side. And following the standards help you well cover your blind spots, see the things that you that you've missed. Um, and then, well, as Dr. Bissun explained, uh, the the knock-on effect is 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 a big positive going forward. Uh, I want to add something uh, in terms of what yes. Herman mentioned as well. Standards. Um, I think um, has to be top of mind of the CEO in an organization. Uh, too frequently we've seen as part of a national standards body, standards become a tick box, a compliance issue only at a specific level, meaning it's just given to the crash officer, a quality officer or an environmental officer and do what you need to do just to uh, allow for a tick box. Um, standards are a strategic value and importance to the organization. It should be a discussion uh, top of mind at the CEO and the board. And unless you create that culture of importance of standards and the implementation and the impact of standards for your organization, you'll be doing implementing standards for all the wrong reasons. And this is critical. It has to be at the right discussion, at the right level, and you've got to make sure that the organization is equipped and adequately capacitated to implement standards and provide compliance measures as well. I, I, I have to add on to this. Um, it is extremely important what Dr. Bassoon mentioned just now. Um, we found that uh, if, if a standard is, becomes a tick box exercise, often, often people miss the, the important stuff. I've been, um, I, I, I saw people that went through the experience of uh, going, going to, to an international uh, manufacturer see a product, think, oh, this is going to sell good in South Africa. He brings home three containers, uh, containers full of this product. Um, when it arrives in South Africa, he, he starts struggling to, to get it sold, only to find out that it's not compatible with the South African environment. Um, then ending up at a test house, having this tested, um, trying to, uh, well, then only starting to compare it with the standard and finding out that there's one or two critical errors. Some some cases they they they're able to um, rework the three containers full of products, but by that time it's it's no longer a, a process of making money from or generating revenue. It's a process of minimizing your losses. So it is absolutely critical to make sure to have a look at the standards, all the standards, right from from day one, and use that as a as a guide, not as a, a compliance stick box exercise herman having having mentioned to the um the the uh, implementation of standards in certain industries and you did mention that there are quite a few uh, standards that are applicable and relevant to the plumbing sector or the plumbing industry specifically is there any feedback from within the plumbing industry or any other industry for that matter about the pricing of sand standards uh, if I can maybe just elaborate on that question, uh, do consumers feel that standards are reasonably priced or do they feel that standards are expensive and unaffordable to the average consumer, uh, especially to tradespersons? Uh, what, what feedback are there from, from the standards and, and, and more specifically from the plumbing industry? Um, I, I can almost turn it around in another question. Which product do you know of that people say, oh, this is nice and cost-effective? <laughs> so uh, to answer the question, the way that you've asked it to me, the feedback that we receive, and specifically in the plumbing industry, is there, there's a general perception that standards are way too expensive and not cost-effective. 
um, that is the communication that that comes through. There's different ways of looking at that, and it's not uh, uh, honestly, it's not consensus. It's not that everybody says exactly the same thing. So you get two ends of the spectrum. You get the um, you get a lot of plumbers that that look at the standards as part of the toolbox. This is a piece of equipment. It's a tool that I need to do my job, and I go nowhere without the standard. I shall do this. If you compare the the price of a standard to the tools to equipment, it is not that expensive. However, on the other end of the, of the spectrum, especially in the plumbing industry, there are a lot of small, really small enterprise guys. A single person, maybe with with one or two people helping him doing the installations and so on, where pricing is um, and and margins are extremely low, and they they really can only afford the the bare basics. And the reality is, there's quite a lot of them, um, and a lot of them has, have expressed that the, that the standards are. They, they they like to follow it, but for them, they say it's it's just 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 too expensive to to have that. While they they'd rather have the tool and buy the materials to do the to do the work. How does the SABS determine the pricing of standards? So it's a it's a very important question uh, to address regarding accessibility and uh, dissemination of standards. That is part of our core mandate as well. Now. The standards that we adopt from ISO and IEC, they're copyrighted. So the copyrights don't reside with the SABS. We have exploitation rights whereby we could change the standard, but the changes that we make to a standard um, has to be approved. Uh, and there's a few um, considerations that we can use to change ISO standards. They refer to as modified adoptions. Uh, the, the differences include maybe there's technology differences from the advanced economies, which is part of the ISO standard. Climatic conditions are different, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, so the standards should be quite different as well, and uh, geographical differences. The pricing of the standard is, um, in terms of ISO standards, they have a methodology of how they price, and um, obviously they're in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, so it's Swiss francs. Um, so when we buy an ISO standard, there is no negotiation in terms of prices. ISO has a fixed price in terms of me their methodology. Just to give you an example of uh, a pricing of standards and, and why is it so important for us to adopt these international standards as South African national standard. An ISO standard, ISO 9001 standard, purely ISO. If you have to go to ISO and buy the standard, you'll pay equivalent in terms of RAND value, about 6,000 RAND for a 40-page document. When we take that document, and each national standards body has the opportunity to do so. Remember, ISO has 165 country members, and uh, SABS is one of the members, South, slash South Africa is a member of ISO. When we take that ISO standard and adopt it as a South African national standard, so it's a dual numbering. We'll have SANS and ISO. Copyrights still reside with ISO, but we don't have um, the, so we're actually we have the luxury of um, using a different price scale uh, aligned to their methodology, but it'll be a different price scale. So as an example, as I said, 9,001 plus minus 6,000 Rand equivalent, you will pay a South African national standard adoption thereof, identical adoption, probably between 500 Rand. So that's the difference between the ISO price and the South African national standard price. And this is one of the benefits of adopting international standards. We don't adopt international standards because of the price. Um, so we stay far away, it's not about the price. 
Um, and I think people, uh, you know, talk about pricing. You should rather talk about the strategic value of the implementation of that standard that it will add to your business, no matter how small you are, whether you're a one-person company or a several thousand-person company. If you implement that standard, uh, it is guaranteed. And if you implement it effectively, it will assist you in terms of all the uh, benefits that we've positioned in terms of market access, etc. So we have uh, the 7,000 standards that we have in excess of 7,000. There's a pricing strategy aligned to the international pricing strategy, but they are way different in terms of pricing uh, in terms of the South African market. So we cater for the South African market in terms of pricing. Companies have the opportunity to get a collection of standards on subscription, annual subscription, and that is one of the modalities of getting standards. They can buy retail individual standards. They could get it online using our web store and have an electronic copy of the standard. Um, but unfortunately, standards cannot be for free. Uh, for sure. um, they cannot be for free. Like, you know, there's an argument that regulations are for free. I can counteract that argument. Regulations are not for free. You're paying, you have a regulatory body that public funds go to. Your taxes go towards funding a regulatory body in government. Uh, and they develop regulations. So it's not for free. They might give you a free document, but you're paying for that as part of your public funds. Similarly, a national standard is a document that comes out of a process. And yes, we've got individuals participating in our technical committees, but at the same time, we do not. We try as far as possible not to become financially constrained uh, on government funding as well. We certainly want to get to that space. Currently, it's a non-commercial entity, this national standards body. We get funding from government to fund our processes. Uh, we don't have a um, a scheme of membership where other national standards bodies uh, have a membership fee that members need to pay to become members and participate and contribute. We don't have that. We can go that route, but I don't think South, currently South African industry and the public sector has an appetite to pay membership fees, uh, and that's co-funding and co-sourcing. So the only source of revenue is standards, um, and, and it's, a, it's a very small source of revenue to co-fund the grant that we get. Eventually, we want to be totally reliant and self-sustainable uh, as, as an entity, and that's why standards will remain at a price. Um, but the conversation should be different. It is about the importance and the strategic value of not a document, but the implementation of the document and what the benefits are for documents. Thank you. Um, just in terms of our neighbors, you know, like Botswana, Swaziland, and all of them, do they use their own standards or do they use our, have they adopted ours? So each country has a national standards body. Um, so they are responsible to develop their own national standards as well. Um, we are all members of the of ISO as well as IEC, so they gain their best practice from ISO standards as well. So the idea of taking ISO standards and bringing back to so-called, you could use the word nationalize it, to take into consideration the peculiarities in terms of the current socioeconomic development, the, the, the current challenges in the various economies. And you would know, you know, there's 55 member countries in Africa, and we talk about the African continental free trade area, and that's another day for discussion as well in terms of harmonization of standards. The African continental free trade area, uh, we are members of ARSO, the African Organization for Standardization, and we are putting forward a lot of standards to be harmonized in the African continent so that it will allow for the free trade and movement of goods 
in the African continent. So we work very closely with the national standards bodies of the various um, countries and national standards bodies uh, within the various regional economic communities in Africa as well. But each country has the autonomy and uh, to develop what standards based on their national standardization strategy. So there has to be a strategy in terms of socioeconomic support, et cetera. And each country is very different um, and their requirements are very different as well. But the more you take on ISO and IEC standards, the more applicable your standards are or the services and your goods, goods are to, um, to a global and regional movement of, of services and goods in the marketplace. So ultimately, uh, we want to ensure that standards are adopted uh, on an international best practice perspective. And just before we continue the conversation, it's time to hit the brakes again. Plumber training has never been easier with articulated plumber courses. Enroll now to upskill yourself at your own pace and earn CPD points. Our informative and easy to follow courses can be found on iopsatraining.co.za. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Articulated Plumber. Welcome back. To continue our conversation, I would like to ask the following question. Herman, specifically with regards to the standards that apply to the plumbing uh, industry or the plumbing sector, is there any reference to water supply in the SANS 10400 standard? And uh, if not, what is the reason there for? Okay, so now we're getting to the to, to the detail specifics. Just so that the listeners understand uh, what we're talking about, if you talk about SANS 10400. So SANS 10400 um, is a, what we call a deemed to satisfy standard for the building regulations. There's a law, um, an act, let me use common language. There's legislation that says this is what a building need to comply with. Then there are standards 10400 is a set of rules if you follow these rules then everybody will accept that it complies to the legislation to the legislative requirements and there are many different sections within the sense 10400 it covers every every aspect of a building um so your question is is water supply covered in this part the short answer no it is not directly covered in 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 that part there are it is covered to some extent uh, under the energy efficiency regulations. There are some references to water supply, but water supply as a whole is, is, is not directly addressed in SANS 10400. The reasons for this, I've, I, I've heard many stories, um, um, I can almost start calling them legends, not sure, <laughs> not, not sure what the, what the origin of this is. What I am aware of is that there, there, there has been various discussions um, and it sounds like there's various movements and it just might be covered as a specific part in SANS 10400 in the, in the near future. Dr. Bissoon, we've spoken a little bit, or we've heard the words during our conversation, legislation and regulation. Um, it, it, does anything supersede the standards? Let's say, for example, municipal bylaws. So the word law means something is mandatory. You need to comply with it. And that's the difference between uh, bylaw, uh, national provincial legislation, uh, to a national standard. So a national standard, by virtue of the document that we publish, is for voluntary application. Only if it's referenced um, in the bylaws, in the national legislation, 
then it becomes mandatory and compliance is compulsory. So you, the, the, the manufacturer, the service provider, et cetera, has to comply and meet those requirements. Uh, but uh, in the broader context, these standards are available for the public to use on a voluntary basis. And that's the, the preferred system uh, of how mature economies should move towards. You want to give uh, the economies, the stakeholders, the opportunity to use these standards freely and provide a self-regulatory system. If there is market failure, then you bring in regulations. You don't want to overburden an industry, an economy with regulations. As I mentioned, regulations comes at a cost. You need to get people in a building. You need to have a stakeholder engagement. You need to publish documents. And, more, and further to that, you need to have an enforcement mechanism majority of the regulations are easily published. They're out there in the public place, but they are not enforced. And this is where a significant shortfall is uh, in terms of um, enforcement or compliance to regulations. Uh, I, I, I heard you say that uh, only if a legislation or regulation or bylaw or law for that matter makes reference to a specific standard so there can be regulations out there uh, that that make reference to uh, standards that apply to the plumbing sector in specific and then it becomes compulsory to comply with that standard is exactly. that correct that's correct yeah that's exactly how it should work in a mature environment correct yeah well let, let's be specific <laughs> as you've, uh, you you've mentioned in the plumbing sector, if I use one specific example, um, the Standards Act may provision that standards may be adopted into legislation. Uh, the Water Services Act, as published in 2001, uh, might spe make specific reference to SANS 102.52, Part 1 and Part 2, and SANS 102.54. Remember, these are the standards that I recommend that all plumbers make sure you have a copy of that which practically means that these standards are incorporated into national legislation. Therefore, in all, all areas around the country, it is a legal requirement to comply with these standards. Um, and on a local government level, as you say, local government normally apply bylaws that, and the, the focus of the bylaws is implementation of national legislation, not necessarily, they, they can't overrule or supersede the national standards and i think that's part of where the where, where the where the questions come from can the the local bylaw supersede the the standard that's been promulgated in national legislation and the answer is no the, the local authority cannot overrule that but normally they don't do that the local authorities seek to apply what is there and implement the, the rules as it is in the in in the country as 100 percent, dr bassoon just to add to that, to Herman's comments, I think there are areas of inefficiencies and incoherence around uh, standards referenced and in local bylaws, national legislation as well. And these inefficiencies come about because there's duplication of efforts to develop standards. So ideally, you should have the national standards body, like the SABS, developing national standards, and those national standards should be used as documents referenced in bylaws, national laws, etc. Rather than what we have in South Africa 
is that each government department has, as I pointed out, a regulatory authority, and that, that regulatory authority develops mandatory standards or regulatory standards. And these may, in most cases, do not reference national standards. They reinvent the wheel and develop new requirements for, for legislating their um, regulatory objectives. And that becomes a problem because it creates a huge amount of confusion in the marketplace. Bylaws says something. We have a national standards for voluntary application. The national legislation says something else. So that coherence um, has to be addressed in the marketplace, both in the public and private sector. Speaking of coherence, and, and, and that they, it, it seems that uh, I can deduce from that that there may be contradiction between some regulations and bylaws and standards itself. Herman, if I can address the next question to you, please. Are there any conflicting or contradicting statements between different standards that uh, apply to the plumbing sector that, you, that you're aware of? Yes, sometimes that happens. I think um, following on from what Dr. Bassoon said, there are there different processes and let, let's not waste time on, on explaining how it comes to be. The fact is, it happens sometimes. Sometimes there are contradicting requirements in standards or requirements that contradict legislation and so on. But in cases like that, there are there are legal uh, legal principles that's well established and published in the country that uh, that one can follow to identify um, how how to address this, what what to do. And I think one of the most um, basic principles that that normally resolve this. Uh, is, is one of the principles that's been published. It says if there's two sets of legislation um, addressing the same topic, but one set, one one piece of legislation is a generic legislation, the other one is a specialist legislation. Then typically the the rules of the specialist legislation will take precedence. So one specific example in the plumbing industry that that happened um, recently was uh, the size of a geyser. What is the maximum size of a geyser that may be mounted on a wall? Um, if you if you read 10252, it said uh, practically said 150 liters is the biggest size. If you read 10254, it said 200 liters, um, which brought uh, quite some confusion. Um, when they analyzed that, the it was found or well not found. It's just clear clear to see that you know what 10254 is the specialist standard for geyser installations. Added to that, there's a standard for geysers. And even the standard for geysers included test requirements and it referenced the 200 liter mounting to a wall. So it was easy enough to say, you know what, it's clear that the full intention of the full set of le legislation was, or full sets of standards, uh, was that the maximum size should be 200 liters. So that is what was applied practically. Um, this was reported and subsequently the, the standard 10252 part one was amended to be aligned with that. And that is the beauty, as uh, Dr. Bissoon said earlier, standards are, are living documents. As challenges are identified, it can be reported and it can be addressed, amended. So Dr. Bissoon, then I can direct the next question to you. Uh, how are such conflicting or contradicting statements addressed? So before I, I go ahead, I just wanna mention something about regulations. Um, and more more regulatory stakeholders in our technical committees. The reason why we want regulators, policymakers in our technical committees is to address this real fact. 
We want the regulators to allow for coherent acknowledgement of standards and the regulators, there could be two or three different type of regulators sitting in one particular committee addressing the same regulatory objective. What happens amongst regulators is that there could be scope creeps. NRCS might regulate one aspect of a particular product and maybe another regulatory body out there like Department of Energy might regulate another aspect of a particular product. And that's why we want all the regulators sitting around the table. Remember, we don't develop and talk regulations in terms of developing regulatory documents in our technical uh, committees. It's purely the voluntary standards. So the representation and effective movement, uh, uh, commitment of regulators and policymakers in representing and talking about solutions that they could use in, as part of the regulations is very important. We, our technical committees, um, as I said, they, they're very diverse, and sometimes we have subcommittees that have two different standards, maybe in this with a similar scope, sitting in two different committees. And uh, and sometimes it's wise, sometimes it's not. It's not wise to do that. And we try as far as possible to get liaison representation in those committees. So a person who's sitting in one committee has the ability to sit and oversee the documents in the other committee so that any conflict of a conflict in terms of documents and coherence is addressed and it could be could be tabled at any given time but herman has quite rightly pointed out it's a living document at any given point the technical committee or even uh, as somebody in the marketplace a consumer could raise the issue around a document not serving the needs probably being um, not valid or there's uh, scope creep etc and conf causing confusion in the marketplace that is easily addressed. It's brought into the committee. The committee will look at the documents, understand the rationale, and determine and make a call whether that document needs to be amended, needs to be revised, or maybe totally withdrawn uh, as part of the collection and replaced with something else. So it's a dynamic environment, um, but uh, at the same time, it can only be as dynamic as the stakeholders participating in the committee. And that is a point that I want to address uh, in the committees. The effective participation, the effective contribution, as much as we got committee members participating on a voluntary basis, they, they need to understand that they're serving the needs, not just not of SABS, but they're serving the national needs. We are developing a national solution, a national document for a national need. And the reality is, and we all know this, and I think I'm going to be very open about this, technical committees generally will come in with vested interests into our technical committee. They will change a document because they want market access of their product into the marketplace. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's rife, but that is the understanding. And this is what the committee is all about, getting all points of view, reconciling different technical arguments, and putting a best solution forward that will serve the needs of South Africa, not an individual company or an individual association. And, and we try as far as possible to manage that. So it's a very open, transparent process. Uh, we do get issues around being perceived, uh, certain committees, certain committee members being perceived as uh, engaging on collusive activities. We, we work very closely with the uh, Competition Commission they actually sat into a few of our commit, uh, committees to understand and appreciate where uh, there has been allegations of uh, industry participants um, contributing towards anti-competitive behavior in the marketplace, and they're using the platform of the SABS to do that. 
So we try as far as possible to negate that by implementing our policies and procedures as well as our competition guidelines in our, com in our committees. Uh, if, if I can quickly add on to that, I think, uh, again, it's, it's very and it's vitally important uh, what Dr. Bisson said. And I think having sat on several of, of those committees as well, an uh, important principle, I think, for the users to understand is that at the committees, decisions are not made based, based on vote. You can get to a vote, but decisions are made based on consensus. So if there's a committee and there's 10 uh, different bodies being represented, and there's an argument being, being raised by one of them, um, they need to convince, really convince nine others that that is absolutely the right thing to do before that can be adopted into a in, into a standard the i think in all the all the committees i've sat i think they we it, it ended up in a vote only once in many many years so the vote voting determining the outcome of a standard almost never happens it's all consensus a robust debate sometimes quite heated debate but debate nonetheless Herman, then I can ask that next question to you. So if there is final consensus and and uh, once a standard is, is accepted and printed, uh, is it correct to state that the whole standard must be applied and not be broken into, into sections that deviate from the entire standard? That is absolutely correct. Um, and I think the way to, a way to look at this is if you can, well, a standard is a set of minimum requirements. So it, it, it's a list of requirements that says all products should at least comply to this and at least comply to that. So if, if a product doesn't comply with any one of the minimum requirements, it means, well, I can't stress that <laughs> in a different way. It's a minimum requirement that it doesn't comply with. Let's say, let's say we, were, we were looking at this and say, well, there's, there's, there's 50 requirements. You should have a pass rate of at least 90% to say that you comply with the standard. Um, it might be that the one requirement out of the 50 that you don't comply with is, uh, let's put, uh, take pl uh, plumbing, the, 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 the safety, safety device, uh, temperature pressure safety valve. You might comply with all the requirements except the valve doesn't release at the right pressure. It stays closed. I mean, that means it can give you a 95% pass rate, but still, it, it leaves you with a dangerous product that might cause, end up causing an explosion. Um, and and that, is the, that, that is the principle. Compliance means 100% compliance with every single requirement of the standard because it's minimum requirements. Dr. Bissoon and, and, and Herman, I'm going to address this to you as, as collectively. Um, how and by whom is compliance with SANS standards enforced? I know Dr. Bassoon has, has visited the, the, uh, the fact that compliance is voluntary, but should it be enforced by, uh, let's say, for instance, industry bodies? By, is, is, can I say that it can be enforced by, by, by industry bodies if if uh, uh, individuals are registered with certain industry bodies or if, if companies are registered as members with uh, certain industry bodies, um, do those industry bodies uh, uh, enforce the compliance with these standards? 
if I, if if I can start with uh, a concept, and I think we must we must. Um, you've used the word enforce. Now, enforce is a it's a legal term. I mean, there's only one. Uh, anything can only be enforced through a legal process, and you can only do that if you are legally appointed to do so. So yes, where standards are um, legally mandated and there's enforcement, then simply follow what the law says. I think what happens often is voluntary compliance or where industry decides we, we shall comply with this. Um, industry bodies often play a role there that says, if you want to be part of this, or we as a collective um, agree that we shall comply with the standards. Um, and, and in many cases like that, I think that alludes not alludes back, that, that addresses the point that, that uh, Dr. Bissons uh, made earlier as well. We, and, and we've definitely found that where there's voluntary compliance, standards w actually works much better than in an environment where there's legally manda mandated compliance and you try to, to police, police it down all, all the way. Um, so, yes, any, anybody mandated by law can definitely apply and enforce the standards. Um, but it's by far uh, preferred that that industries choose to comply and then follow the rules. I mean, any as an example, if if a company purchases a product, um, I'm building a building and I send out a tender for locks. It is my choice to to tell people that I want lo only locks compliant to the same standard. Um, there might not be any other legislation that says locks shall comply to that standard, but it's my right. And in that, in that sense, I become the regulator that uh, regulates the fact that anything installed in my building complies to the same standard. Dr. Vissou? So I'm not going to add to Herman because Herman very clearly articulated uh, the enforcement part of it. And it's, uh, he's quite right in saying that it's a, it's a legally appointed entity that should be doing that. But we always push forward that the a self-regulatory mechanism in the industry should be put forward um, um, as part of uh, industry acceptance of a particular standard. Uh, if I may just add something else, which m it touches on an element of enforcement, but enforcement under conformity assessment schemes. Because if a company voluntarily says, I want, an, as, let's take an example, an SABS mark on my product, SABS approved on my product, he, then he has to administer the requirements of being an SABS mark holder. And the requirements uh, for the SABS to ensure and to enforce the requirements onto that client or company who says he wants to put the SABS mark on the product. So um, it's a scheme. Um, as I pointed out, two separate issues around test reports, around auditing. If there is non-compliance of that product, it, there's a compromise in the marketplace. There's a compromise of the third-party certification body, in this case it would be the SABS, in terms of the brand, the integrity of the SABS certification body, or it could be any other certification body, body for that matter then the certification body has all the authority within their rules of that scheme to have a recourse. So they could go out, uh, and if the product is non-compliant, they could go out and cease and desist um, that company from operating, confiscate the products within the scheme and rules of that certification scheme. 
so that is an element of enforcement, not legal enforcement in the terms of what we are talking around a regulator, but enforcement can be within the realm of a conformity assessment service provided by a third-party conformity assessment body. Well, now that you mentioned that, it, it brings up a, a, another aspect to, um, to bear in mind, and that is the Consumer Protection Act. So it, it comes down to, to, to the similar principle, but where any company, even outside of a certification scheme, any company claims that its product complies to a national standard, to the same standard, if, if you find that that product does, does not in fact comply, then the Consumer Commission is there and ready to assist. You, you can report it to the Consumer Commission, and they have structures in place to, well, take the necessary action against such, such companies. And that can be um, quite serious. Dr. Vissoon? I, I want to address an additional item uh, in terms of participating in technical committees, if that's okay with you. 100%. So our website, um, as much as it's not where we would like it to be, um, in terms of look and feel and information um, that's displayed on the website, we have a number of web pages that information on our standards are easily uh, you know, available. So the entire um, collection of our TCs within our website. You can go www.sabs.co.za um, and the icon on standards provides um, elements of all the technical committees, so all 302 technical committees, their scope of work, their current program of work, the list of publications, and together with a number of other uh, important um, information on each technical committee is available on our website. So that's very important. I don't think consumers, manufacturers really get into the website. It's probably for uh, you know the, the difficulty of getting to the web page that you want to see it, and we're trying to improve on that. But this information is readily available. Secondly, if any um, member of uh, the community or any citizen wants to participate, wants to contribute towards the draft South African National Standard, have a look at it that could be easily accepted, uh, available as well. So you go into our website, there's a link that shows you Draft South African National Standard that's out for public comment. You click on the download. The download page will open up into a brief information requirement, just your name, details, email address, etc. Once you're registered, you get that download that you requested. That download is available for the time and the period of the public inquiry, which is 60 days and the document is readily. So you get the full draft South African national standard for a period of 60 days uh, on the public inquiry for you to review, engage, um, and it, uh, it has um, document management rights as well to prevent you know, the abuse of the copyrights of the document. So there's a lot of information around standards, how to get into participating the, uh, in the various technical committees, and more importantly, the opportunity to comment on the draft South African national standards that when they go out on on public inquiry. Now just before we say goodbye, it's time to hit the brakes one last time. We'd like to encourage our audience to follow Articulated Plumber on Instagram and Facebook, not only to find out more about the Man in the Band podcast, but also to learn more about any exciting and interesting news that we may have. Our handle on both Instagram and Facebook is Articulated Plumber. Um, 
Are there any final words from either of you to the audience? Herman. I think the most, especially at the end, uh, what Dr. Bassoon said now is one of the things or one of the thoughts that I would like to leave the audience with is the fact that, remember, standards are it's actually by the country, for the countries, by us, for us. Everybody's got the uh, opportunity to, to contribute to that. Um, if, if you find, uh, and if I can, uh, can speak specifically to the plumbers that I know that will, will be listening to this, if you find anything in the standards that you believe is, should be different, um, there are the opportunities to address this. It is not cast in stone. It's a living document. There's processes that can be followed to address that and make sure that the standards are, are practical um, and usable and adds value to our communities and everything. So follow the processes. If you don't know, contact SAPS, contact AHP so we can put you in contact with the right things, uh, right people, right places. But standards are living documents. We all have the opportunity to contribute and use them. Uh, it, it adds a lot of value. It covers your blind spot. And that is the, the, the one piece that makes sure that you can do the job the right the first time, no comebacks. And... That's all I have to say. <laughs> so thanks. Thank you very much for this opportunity to be part of this discussion today. Herman, thank you. Dr. Bassoon, any final words? Well, Herman basically took the words out of my mouth. Uh, standards are there and standardization processes are there for the nation. And they allow for the efficient functioning of the economy. Strategically understand the importance of it. Access it implement it and uh, we can guarantee you that it'll make a huge difference uh, in your business so embrace standardization and thank you for the opportunity to be on your show thank you thank you dr bisoon for your time and your effort and your inputs and the, and the valuable information that you've shared with the audience today i think you've clarified quite a few uh, issues and a quite a f you've answered quite a few of the questions that the industry and the, and you know the tradesperson community may have regarding standards uh, herman also thank you for your time for having sit in with us in studio and uh, lorraine thank you for your time for being my anchor and mr steve brown on the other side also from my officer thank you for having been on, on on my side and my wingman during this episode finally it's time to switch off this engine cheerio man in the van podcast your regular audio drive time companion 